Action One, inspiring action. Look up, because you never know what you will see. Hi, my name is Shinga, and I'm the host of SG2 on Space, the only weekly space show here in Houston, with Action One Media Group support every Thursday night. So, my goal here is to educate the public in terms of space science, space flight, um, physics, astronomy. ETC, you know, all that cool jazz, and occasionally about aliens as well. Um, so, STEAM education, science, technology, engineering, arts, um, since that's part of the creative aspect, and mathematics is very important to me, and I feel like Action One Media's goal is aligned with mine. So together, we hope to um, encourage the, the knowledge, and especially the passion and interest in outer space uh, in our Houston community. Tune in to SGT on Space on Thursdays at 8 p.m. U.S. Central Time. Look up because you never know what you will see. All right, everybody, this is your host, Shin Gun. Episode number 42, SG2 on space. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully you're watching us on YouTube. Uh, look up SG2 on space. Or at weareaone.com. Or, and please follow me at facebook.com slash theshenshow. Uh, that's T-H-E-S-H-E-N-S-H-O-W. Um, and lastly, of course, this is at weareaone.com because that is a website of the media group which is hosting this show. This is a studio, right? Action One Media Group. So, um, <clears throat> some of you regular listeners may know uh, this show is every Thursday, as far as I can tell. It is the only weekly space uh, radio show here in Houston, uh, possibly Texas. So, any case, uh, with that aside, let me just say what are our main theme here today. Themes, I should say. Well, I figured that um, I was reading some stuff about aliens the other day. And, you know, uh, two episodes ago, I was talking about life, right? Or rather, exoplanets, discovering various kinds of exoplanets. Um, that was that focus back in, let's see, two episodes ago. Uh, this time, I've decided, hey, why not take a further in-depth look at, you know, Life, ET, what is that? You know, what's what's the latest news regarding that, right? But before we jump into this, I figured that I will make an announcement as well, because tomorrow, um, if you're listening to this live, actually, that will make more sense. But in any case, uh, on August 16th, that's Friday, and for those of you listening live, that would be tomorrow uh, night, August the 16th at 6 p.m. is an <clears throat> event I am organizing slash hosting uh, called Space Poetry and Wine. Alright, so if you're in Houston, um, or if you're willing to drive, slash fly, or land in your spaceship, or teleport, okay, here at, um, what is it, Kaboom Books, it's a local bookstore here in Houston, that'd be great. And so, 
That will start approximately around 6 p.m. I imagine some people would take a little bit, a little bit, little time to get there due to the crazy Houston traffic. So it may start at 6:15 or 6:20. Okay, the place could fit about 50 people. So you know, you know, just find a seat if you're coming. Uh, and uh, I'll read some of the poetry I wrote, which are not all space-related, but a good chunk of them are. And when I define space, I also mean the inside as well, because, you know, inside as well as outside. I'll explain what, what I mean by that uh, at the actual event. Um, so, in any case, uh, another attraction might be the fact that uh, wine and possibly other drinks and some, some snacks will be provided. Of course, if by the time you arrive it's all gone, then too bad, but I'll provide some of it. And, um, and yeah, there, there's, the new book is out called <clears throat> Requiem, The Space Between Words. And um, there's going to be, uh, you know, book signings as well after the reading. Uh, so, you know, stick around for a while and feel free to talk to me. So that'd be good. Uh, just to give you a taste, I figured I would t uh, just... This is actually from my first book, which is also going to be there for sale. Um, so I figured I would actually just read maybe two. And then we'll go on to the main show. How about it? So, all right. Okay. Let's see here. One, you know, there's something here. All right. So let's get. <clears throat> okay, so one thing I am. Um, man, there's so many that. Choose one that actually would make sense. So yeah, right. Okay, so. Alright, so this one was. Uh, it's called The Transit of Venus. Uh, it's basically something that I saw a number of years back when Venus um, crossed in front of the sun. Apparently, it doesn't happen that often. So I wrote this, um, and here's how it goes. <clears throat> so. Trespassing darkness in front of light, moments of transcendence in its flight. Morning star, evening star, to whence it flies, its orbit transgresses to we of watchful eyes. So, okay. Um, all right, so that's one. Let me just read another one. Okay, okay, all right. So when I say, for instance, space, I don't just mean outer space. I also mean how it feels hits your soul, right? Or at least my soul. Hopefully it resonates with some other people's soul as well. So this one I wrote a while back called Second of Cosmic Joy. Uh, this is not in my new book. This is from my old book. All right. Um, so here's how it goes. One lonely night filled with despair. Perchance I glanced up from a hill. And for that second I stood there. I witnessed the cosmic thrill soul touched by serene hums the music of the divine spheres softly rolled into my eardrums and shed away all my fears ascended by the celestial sight bliss came whilst i quietly wept the sky danced with such light that my soul was set all alight a second of cosmic joy a second of pure delight a second like a little boy a second of true sight when this second passes by, a soul f falls back to earth. Our smile while saying bye, for I have lived a rebirth. Trivial all my worries are, and next time I will know. All in night, just gaze afar while I start feeling low. All right, so in any case, <clears throat> I think th for me that, that really um, that really is true. While I'm feeling down, I just need to go outside and look up, right? 
I could see a UFO, but it doesn't matter. Even if I don't see a UFO or aliens, I still see the stars or at least the moon. So, and it really uplifts my spirits. Hence why I wrote that. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. So if you just a note, um, go on. Not gonna say the really long Eventbrite URL because I can't remember it. But I tell you, just go to the, <clears throat> um, go to my um, the Facebook.com slash the Shen Show, uh, or Shen, my website, shenge.us, spelled S-H-E-N-G-E dot U-S. And from there, there is a link that just takes you straight to the Eventbrite page, and you can register. It's pretty simple. So, um, anyways, hope to see y'all there. And if not, like I said, it'll be broadcast uh, YouTube Live, so... Uh, let's take a short break. I know I've been going on about this for a while. When we come back, let's talk about some of this alien news stuff, which should be fairly exciting, considering that. some of the other things you got going on. Absolutely. So uh, thank you for having me. I feel like uh, I'm in the of like celebrity. It's just a chase, man. So I think like 2000. Put your money where your community is. Get in the action. Action one, independent thinkers working together, inspiring action in media. Get in the action, inspire today. Join us by being a sponsor at weareaone.com. Growing up as a black kid in New Jersey, all I ever wanted to do was be a pro athlete. All of my role models were black athletes. And every time I would stare out the window, look at the sky and wonder what I'd be in the future, it always had to do with me catching some crazy football and, and scoring a touchdown. When it came to the point that I was told that I would not be able to play on an organized sports team for the rest of my life, it was something that I really didn't even know how to stomach in the moment. And I remember walking out of my cardiologist's office and just sitting in the hallway and breaking down for a few minutes just because it, it, it was something that I just couldn't plan for and couldn't account for. And I realized that in that moment, my entire life was going to be changed. And all of those dreams and, and hopes and aspirations that I had were going to go out of the window. Okay, and we are back. Wow, look at that outside. 
stormy weather, which means uh, most likely, well, you guys can't see, but I can see it. So on these nights, you may not see any UFOs here, but you will certainly see some clouds and lightning, which, by the way, is also a very interesting phenomenon. But <clears throat> my show is not about that. And today, we're not talking about that. We're talking about aliens, all right? Aliens, that's right. So um, I'm sure you guys have seen a lot of sci-fi, or some of you have. I have. And uh, we're going to get to those kinds of aliens later. But for now, let's go with what, you know, some people call mainstream science. To me, yeah, whatever. I know. All right. So mainstream science says, okay, there's, there's, you know, we're, we're, aliens are out there. We're still trying to find, you know, proof. Da, 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 da. Um, so one, one thing that's, that's helped a lot are citizen scientists, right? And this is just a recap, actually. Um, you know, there was a recent test science conference at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, on July 30th, all right? So TESS stands for Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS, T-E-S-S, NASA's TESS, right? And that is one of the satellites, one of the spacecrafts after Kepler, which would help us, uh, which would help NASA, and apparently anybody, discover more exoplanets. Exoplanets means planets around other stars, right? Hence, exo. All right. So when it comes to finding exoplanets, though, it turns out more computing power may not be the answer. Computers can only do so much, so sometimes your eyes, human eyes, are still better especially if the computer is ignoring certain data sets. So citizen scientists are scientists like you or I who basically help out by looking at images um, that you know these, these telescopes have taken. And since they're all online, and uh, you or I can go to these websites and look at it, which is amazing. And if we find uh, weird things, which then professional astronomers uh, and scientists will look at it further, you know, we mark it, and then sometimes they discover, oh my gosh, you actually discovered a planet, right? So there's definitely certain types of transits that machines and algorithms just miss. So um, most algorithms, they only have two or even three transit detection thresholds. So th this limits you to finding only shorter period planets. But there's a lot of single transit events, and machines are pretty bad at that, whereas humans are, you know, humans are equally good at finding single transient events as well as multi-transient events, all right? And by, by, uh, by saying transit, that's just like, block the light once, block the light again, block the light again. So machines, if you do this a few times, they're pretty good at it. Humans, they're not very good if you just do it once, apparently. So humans, on the other hand, doesn't matter, all right? Um, so you planet hunters out there, if you're interested, you don't need any knowledge of space science, astronomy. You could be, um, you could be a third grader, okay? I'm not saying there's any, you know, okay. In other words, you don't have to be trained all right all you have to do is there's a little training program that basically says okay this is what you're looking for these are the features you want to mark look at these images right so <clears throat> to make a classification um 8 to 15 volunteers must check a light curve for the presence of a transit right so then for the light curves identified by volunteers as possible transit events the planet hunters test team which is the actual science team for tests right makes a ranked list going from most likely 
like exoplanet to least likely exoplanet. Then the team uses machine learning to create uh, a significance for each transit-like event. Then from that list, the Planet Hunters test science team looks at the top 500 for further verification. All right. So in the first year of operations, since test first up went up last year, um, there were over 12,000 registered volunteers and made over 9 million classifications. That's pretty amazing. All right. So, um, you know, there was some skepticism, but as noted, they did find some stuff, which, which uh, the computer algorithms missed. So if you're interested, um, definitely just look up TESS, T-E-S-S, NASA, and then uh, you can possibly register and you could help you know, NASA scientists uh, possibly uncover exoplanets that their computer algorithms couldn't find. So that'd be great. That's one thing you could do, um, right? Another thing you could do is um, go actually um, hunt for aliens. Just kidding. All right. I'll talk about that later. All right. So <clears throat> speaking of exoplanets, um, just because you discover an exoplanet doesn't mean that it has life, right? Well, a recent new um, study, research, has come out that life actually may be fairly common in the Milky Way, at least in our galaxy. Or we're in the Milky Way galaxy, right? Um, so why is that? Well, it turns out that um, our sun, for instance, our sun's motion through space has brought it really close to some of the other stars, relatively speaking, close in the past 4.6 billion years, right? So, um, and that, that's, that's how, I guess that's how um, uh, 4.6 billion years, okay, yeah. <clears throat> so what happened then is that, you know, we have comets, Right, comets, these icy bodies with these long tails, right? Um, when you get close to another star system and see these comets typically are really far out, you know, they're, they're much further away from the sun than, say, we are, or even, say, Pluto, okay? They're all the way out there. They can be more easily influenced by another star system's gravity, okay? So, depending on how it works, the comets, say, from our star system, some of them could be sent towards that other star system and then vice versa. And then they have comets that come into our star. So yes, so we're swapping comets, okay? So um, so there's, there's a possibility, um, according to Robert Zubrin, the president of Colorado-based company Pioneer Astronautics, um, that there is the, this, cos this cosmic comet swapping, okay, quote-unquote comet swapping, that is not a scientific term, is responsible for many of Earth's past mass extinctions, all right? Um, but he also thinks, and I'm going to quote him, it's a mechanism where life could have been delivered to us and whereby we have probably delivered life to other places over the past 3.5 billion years. And if you simply extrapolate off of that and say everybody's doing this, you've got the galaxy as a supercritical reactor saturating itself with light. All right, so how did he come up with this conclusion? All right, math time. Okay, some of you may really dislike math, but whatever. This is simple stuff. I go into it. All right, so straightforward calculation, taking into account average stellar velocity in the sun's neighborhood which is about point, the sun's neighborhood, uh, the star density, by the way, is 0 0.003 stars per cubic light year, which sounds very 
small, but hey, whatever. The sun's velocity relative to the star field is about 36,000 kilometers per hour, or 22,370 miles per hour, all right? The makeup of the Milky Way stellar galaxy, um, about 75% are like, okay, small, dim, red dwarfs. So you, so you take all of that, okay? So you have stellar velocity, um, you have the density, stellar density, all right? How many, uh, stellar number density, I guess. And you also have the distribution of the, the type of stars, all right? So when you do that, um, and then you assume that other stars have huge comet repositories as well. So give you a quick recap. Um, our sun has what's known as an Oort cloud, O-O-R-T cloud. Uh, so beyond the planets, um, beyond Pluto, which is no longer a planet, uh, beyond the Kuiper belt, is what's known as an Oort cloud, and those that is humongous. Its outer edge is estimated to be between 30,000 to 100,000 astronomical units from the sun. So one AU is the distance from the Earth to the sun, right? So imagine it's like this. Imagine now do 30,000 times that, or actually 100,000 times that. That's that's where the comets are. All right, that's how far I can go out. So. <clears throat> You you imagine you do this with every star system that's around the sun, all right? And imagine you project the sun going around uh, with a certain velocity in these what is it, about 4.5 billion years, and then you imagine a density of these comets, and you say you you do some math and you see how much interaction there are, assuming some of them uh, comets can carry uh, organic molecules, and you end up having a very likelihood that life is pretty much everywhere, all right? So, um, and, and it's one encounter every 21 million years, which considering the four and a half billion years life's, you know, that, that's been doing this, pretty, uh, pretty possible, right? Um, so, any case, what this means is that microbes can make the jump from one system to a temporary neighbor. They could do this relatively quickly. They could avoid extensive exposure to damage in deep space radiation. Um, and if the eject, so even if the ejected material fails to hit the passing solar system, that's pretty important. It could become captured, and uh, the the solar it could get captured in the Oort cloud. All right, and then that Oort cloud could be taken up by another comet going in. So pretty cool. All right, um, this concept is not original. It's called panspermia. Um, so P A N S. P-E-R-M-I-A. And um, panspermia is a hypothesis that life exists throughout the universe, distributed by space dust, meteors, asteroids, comets, planetoids, and also by spacecraft, which I will talk about in a little bit, actually, which is kind of funny, since we are guilty of panspermia as well. Uh, guilty. Wrong word. We, we have done it unintentionally. Um, so... The point is, this is pretty cool, right? Um, just because of these comets, uh, the, there may be life everywhere. I thought that was cool. So, yeah. <clears throat> and, and going to what I just said, panspermia, uh, um, yes, it could have created life here on Earth, possibly from another star system. We are already doing it ourselves by going to the moon. So, for instance, um, there's these things called tardi tardigrades, tardi tardi whatever they're called tardigrades. T they have a silly name, T A R D I G R A D E S. Um, these are these are colloquially known as 
water bears. They're really cute looking, okay? And they're really, I think they're cute looking. All right, some people may think they're weird. They are weird, but they're also very, very cute looking. All right, that's my take. Go look up water bears, all right? So water bears, W-A-T-E-R, okay, water. And then bears, like rawr, bears, except th these guys don't do that because they're super small. But they're animals, they're not bacteria. They, they're, they're, they're like, but you can't observe them unless you look at a microscope. So they're, they're so small. They're classified as micro animals, okay? And they were first discovered in 1773 by, give a short background here because I find it fascinating. Um, I did not study biology, but I do like it, all right, to some extent. <clears throat> German zoologist Johann August Ephraim Goes in 1773 who gave them the name Little Water Bears, right? And then 1777, Italian biologist Lazzaro Spallanzani named them Tardigrada, Tardigrada, which I guess now is the actual name, Tardigrade, which means slow steppers. So why are these guys cool? Well, um, besides the fact that they have a funny name and look like little cute bears and they're tiny, they're found everywhere, all right? From mountaintops to the deep sea to even mud volcanoes, from rainforest to the Antarctic. Okay, and, and they don't need like spacesuits or, or like jackets or deep pressure things, none of that. They can just survive just like that. So they're one of the most resilient animals known and uh, they can survive extreme temperatures, obviously, extreme pressures like air deprivation, yes, you, you can suffocate them. Well, they're, they're, they won't suffocate. That's the thing, right? Radiation, dehydration, starvation. All right. So in other words, a, a human could die a thousand times and this guy would still be alive. All right. So they have survived exposure to outer space. It's apparently being shown that they have. Um, there's about a thousand, a hundred fifty known species. And uh, there's fossils dating from 530 million years ago, so clearly they've been around way longer than we've been around, all right? Um, they're 0.5 millimeters long, all right? That's tiny, 0 0.02 inches, cannot measure it, all right? Short and plump with four pairs of legs, each ending claws or sucking discs. See, I told you, like little bears, right? Except not quite, but anyways. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you can read up on all this very interesting stuff. I mean, you, you might be thinking, okay, um, yes, there are males and there are females. So they are animals, okay? So mating is external and they, like, make eggs and they hatch and so on and so forth and, you know, da-da-da-da, okay? So, so they're animals. All right. <clears throat> the point is, okay, why do I say they're on the moon now? Yes, they're on the moon because, remember... About a month ago, the Israelis wanted to land on the moon, right? Uh, actually, more than a month ago, a couple of months ago, back in April. Um, and we all know what happened. They crash landed on the moon, right? So landing passively, not passively, actively on the moon with retro rockets is really hard. Okay, so unfortunately, they did not land successfully. Uh, now, we're pretty sure that, you know, it's a robotic lander, you know, it didn't transport astronauts. Um, it did carry human DNA samples. Um, and it also had these aforementioned tardigrades. Yes, it had these guys. And also, uh, just for the heck of it, 30 million digitized pages of information. All right. So I'm uh, pretty sure that these tardigrades and the human DNA probably survived. 
Um, now, you might be thinking, okay, so human DNA, I guess that makes sense. They're going to send it to the moon. All right, why are they sending these little tardigrades? Okay, both of them are weird in my perspective, but all right. Okay, so let's talk about the tardigrades. All right, why did they send these to the moon? Um, well, besides the fact that, that they're cute, um, it's the fact that they can survive conditions that would be deadly, right? So the moon, moon's temperature can go down to negative 200 degrees Celsius at night, right? Which is negative 328 degrees Fahrenheit. And it can go up to more than 149 degrees Celsius, which is about 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Obviously, the moon is also pretty much exposed to vacuum, so no air, and radiation, all right? so. Yeah, so, so so I guess the point was to see if they can survive. Although I don't know if there's any instrument to actually observe them, so it would just be up to a future astronaut go there and look, I suppose. Um, one cool thing about this thing is that one of their superpowers is the ability to dehydrate their bodies into a state known as a ton, T-U-N. So they retract their heads and legs, and you guys can watch videos of this, expel the water from their bodies, and shrivel up into a tiny ball. Just imagine a human doing that. Like we, we're like what ninety percent water. Just imagine spitting out all the water and shriveling up into a ball. I think that'd be funny. That probably wouldn't. But anyways, these guys can do that, right? And so they can survive in this dehydrated state. Scientists have found for like ten or more years. So in the future, hopefully, um, some astronaut goes over there, looks at the Israeli um, crash lander. Hopefully, check out the the human DNA is still intact, and check out whether these tardigrades are intact, right? So, that'd be cool. All right, so that that was a really long explanation of the fact that pretty much it is very possible that panspermia could have happened, and and who knows, our planet could have been, you know, some hit by some comet, which has some of these guys, maybe not. Maybe not these water bears exactly, but maybe some other stuff. Who knows? So that that would be that would have been pretty interesting, I think. So, all right. Speaking of uh, <clears throat> stuff like this, apparently, um, so so I, you know, I mentioned how the tardigrades have to shrivel up and expel the water and all that. Okay, so. One of the things is is that yes, pretty much every life form that we've seen uh, requires water. All right, you you could have nothing else, but you you need water. All right, so which is why scientists are always very excited when we discover water or ice in other places, especially in places we don't expect. For instance, um, recently the story came out that there may be thick ice deposits on the moon and Mercury. All right. So, um, <clears throat> now, this is a new analysis of data from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, LRO, and the MESSENGER spacecraft. Okay, LRO obviously orbits around the moon, MESSENGER around Mercury. So, um, now we have known for a while that, you know, they do have water, but now this, this new data suggests they may have way more water than we have previously thought. So. <clears throat> this finding is uh, in the in the journal Nature Geoscience, uh, led by I'm not going to say this right. I will try. Lior Rabaneko and David A. Page. Oh, that wasn't too bad. Graduate student and a professor of planetary science from the Department of Earth, Planetary, and Space Sciences at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. All right. 
with assistance provided by oh my gosh these names why do graduate students have these names Jahanavi Venkatrama there you go all right <laughs> he's a statistician all right so it makes sense you know you analyze data you probably need somebody who's good at statistics right so um, you might think Mercury and the moon, come on, Mercury is a planet, moons are moon, like, no, they actually have a lot in common. So both of them are rocky in nature, both of them are small, both of them are composed of silicate minerals and metals that are differentiated, which means they're split apart, between a metallic core and a silicate mantle and crust, all right? Uh, in addition, they're both oriented in a certain way, in such a way that the sun never rises high above the horizon, leaving them pretty much permanently shaded. Did you know that? That's pretty cool, right? So totally different orbits, but in both cases, uh, they're oriented in a way that the sun never rises high above the horizon. Okay. So, you know, <clears throat> and they both have a lot of craters and pretty much no atmosphere. Although the moon technically has a very thin atmosphere, but doesn't do anything all right so observations have revealed glacier-like ice deposits on mercury and and now the moon right so for, so for instance let's talk about mercury all right so nancy chabot she's an instrument scientist for Mes messengers uh mercury dual imaging system from john hopkins applied university applied physics laboratory okay so she explained we showed mercury's polar deposits to be dominantly composed of water ice and extensively distributed in both Mercury's north and south polar regions. Mercury's ice deposits appear to be much less patchy than those of the moon and relatively fresh, perhaps emplaced or refreshed within the last tens of millions of years. All right. So, um, which I always found interesting since Mercury is so close to the sun it boggles my mind it's amazing to think that there's there's ice there that's just kind of cool all right and um so the moon for a while was thought okay it doesn't have that much ice but now now there could be all right so conclusions reached by looking at the elevation data um obtained by mercury and lro of about fifteen thousand craters like similar craters on mercury compared with the ones on the moon all right so um and then the ucla scientists they use the symmetry to estimate the thickness of ice trapped in them hence why statistics is important right so what they found was that of the craters examined uh, a significant number of them were up to 10 percent shallower when situated near the north pole on mercury and the south pole of the moon but not near the moon's north pole so the most possible explanation probable explanation of this difference in depth is accumulation of thick ice deposits on both worlds all right so that is pretty cool right i thought so okay and this is really good news since there's a lot of um, international interest in going to the moon's South Pole Aiken Basin, which is basically, imagine this is the moon, South Pole Aiken Basin is this gigantic crater. In fact, it's the largest impact crater in our solar system of the South Pole of the moon. And we already know it has water ice. This uh, experimental, not experimental, this theoretical uh, analysis shows that possibly there's even more ice water ice of the South Poakam Basin than we previously expected. So, if confirmed, then great. It's an even better spot to uh, 
to put the first humans back on the moon and stay there, right? So, why? For life support, for fuel deposits, um, you know, all sorts of things, right? Waters, water for life, water for fuel, okay? Water for anything else, growing plants, whatever else, okay? So, great news, all right, guys? Um, you know where to go now. Go to one of those craters. So, all right. So what else is new here? Um, we talked a lot about stuff going on in our solar system, except for you know the comets, panspermia, all that. Um, perhaps you know what? Perhaps it's time to look out there. So recently, I was reading this article, and it had a really interesting title about how there's these glowing aliens. It can turn UV radiation into this beautiful radiance. Okay, maybe somebody's trying to be poetic. Honestly, I feel like writing a poem after reading an article like that, you know? Come on, you turn UV radiation, which most people are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to give you skin cancer. And um, some, some aliens turn that into, I don't know, sparkly, radiant stuff, right? Okay, so where's the science in here? Well, you're just going to have to wait because we're going to have to take a short break. All right, and when we come back, I'll tell you what the science is. All right, so okay, take a short break. This is episode 42. And you still here? Go on and subscribe. Get in action. Oh, we back at it. And you still here? Go on and subscribe. What? Get in the action. Say your ex man can't do it better. Three. Get in the action. Tell me what is the deal. Tell me what is the deal. So I challenge you today. Start strong. I see you. Get in the action. Tell me what is the deal. Cause I'm calling for you. Can you feel that? See, I'm calling for you. Can you feel that? Yeah. See, I'm calling for you. Put your money where your community is. Get in the action at weareA1.com. Look up because you never know what you will see. Hi, my name is Shinga and I'm the host of SG2 on Space, the only weekly space show here in Houston with Action One Media Group support every Thursday night. So, my goal here is to educate the public in terms of space science, space flight, um, physics, astronomy, ETC, you know, all that cool jazz, and occasionally about aliens as well. Um, so, STEAM education, science, technology, engineering, arts, uh, since that's part of the creative aspect, and mathematics is very important to me and I feel like Action One Media's goal is aligned with mine. So together we hope to um, encourage the, the knowledge and especially the passion and interest in outer space uh, in our Houston community. Tune in to SG2 on Space on Thursdays at 8 p.m. U.S. Central Time.
Alright, and we are back. This is SG2 on Space, episode number 42, where I first read a bit of space poetry, because remember, tomorrow, if you're listening live, August 16th, um, 6 p.m. at Kaboom Books is where I read some stuff on space poetry and give you wine. And if not, if you're not there in person, you'd be missing out, but you can watch it online, right? Other than that, I was talking about aliens pretty much the whole time. Uh, <clears throat> so, so far it's been fairly, um, you know, stuff that's going on inside our solar system, blah, blah, blah. Talk about how citizen scientists could just cover exoplanets and how the universe may be teeming, not the universe, the Milky Way could be teeming with life due to something known as panspermia, where comets just carry biological organisms back and forth between different solar systems, right? Since that's just what happens. Um, and then how possibly we're contributing to panspermia as well by sending some DNA molecules and these little water better tardigrades up to the moon. So they're probably hanging out there already. Um, and also the fact that <clears throat> uh, there's more water and ice on the Mercury and the moon, which is helpful if whenever we really intentionally decide to settle on the moon, carrying life to another planet, like to stay in this case humans right so and now before we left i was going to tell you about this very poetic story i read about how uh uv light could be turned into a beautiful radiance all right so uh life on other alien planets uh some of those light may produce a protective glow to buffer flares of nearby stars all right so you you know as <clears throat> Even our sun, which we are all thankful for, for giving us light and energy so that this earth doesn't freeze into a clump of ice and we're all dead. Um, we're all thankful for that. But did you know that the sun is constantly pumping out radiation that could kill you? We have Earth's atmosphere to save us, right? Okay. So um, some stars are worse than others. Uh, they, they could flare out quite frequently, ultraviolet radiation flares. All right. So some life forms that could develop a way to to uh, mitigate that, um, a protective glow known as biofluorescence. So on Earth, um, and I'm quoting Lisa Kaltenegger, an associate professor of astronomer, astronomy, sorry, and director of the Carl Sagan Institute at Cornell University, she basically said this. On Earth, there are some undersea coral that use biofluorescence to render the sun's harmful ultraviolet radiation into harmless visible wavelengths, creating a beautiful radiance. Maybe such life forms can exist on other worlds too, leaving us a telltale sign to spot them. And guess what? We can actually detect it using, so we could use emission characteristics <clears throat> so we know the emission characteristics of common coral um, uh, fluorescent pigments on Earth, right? So, so we we can look at we can examine the the light that these coral um, that these these coral reefs emanate. So we can use that. We know that that spectra, and then we can compare it with the spectra that we observe for planets orbiting around, say, the, for instance, red dwarf stars. All right. So why do we look at specifically red dwarf stars? Because even though they're really dim, all right, they're much smaller than the sun, they pack a punch with uh, frequent emissions of ultraviolet flares, all right? So 
through this process of these bio biofluorescence, these ultraviolet rays can be absorbed and converted into wavelengths that are longer, so less energetic, and safer, which could help life survive on these exoplanets, right? That orbit close to red dwarfs. So, which would be amazing. Can you imagine suddenly like this red dwarf star decides to go bonkos because it keeps doing that? Okay, don't ask me why it keeps doing ultraviolet flares. Probably something to do with the stellar nuclear stuff going on. All right, I need to read up on that. But let's just say it sends out UV rays, right? It, it, it does that, a huge blast of UV rays. And then it hits this planet. Well, guess what? This planet has these life forms, so it creates a biofluorescent shield, so the whole planet starts glowing, which would be so cool. I think that would be amazing to watch. So, all right. So, I think I think that's pretty darn cool, right? Just imagine the whole whole thing starts glowing, whole planet starts glowing. All right. <clears throat> now we can definitely detect this either by Earth or space-based telescopes. We can, yes, we can detect if a whole planet is glowing. So, um, I think, I think that's, that's pretty cool. So I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen. Um, the sci citizen scientists, um, you guys, or actually I could do it too. Everybody should get to work, find these other exoplanets and then, uh, then have these professional astronomers look at it in detail, look at their spectra and see if they match these characteristics. Cause if it does, Oh my gosh, right? So, <clears throat> all right. I think there's enough about this kind of stuff. Um, but let's, let's talk more about like aliens actually here on Earth, right? I mean, because we all know they're here. Yeah, you guys know this, right? Um, and in fact, I, I, say, I mean, even presidential candidates though say so. Like a few years ago, 2016, Hillary Clinton, right? People asked her, okay, she didn't win, obviously, but people asked her, hey, um, you know, what about these aliens? And she said, yeah, okay, you know, I uh, want to find out. I will reveal to the public, reveal more. Now, now, uh, <clears throat> in this presidential election here that's coming up in 2020, uh, Bernie Sanders, he was recently, you know, inquired on what he would do about aliens. Well, in fact, I think he even volunteered that information. And he said he would release any information about aliens if he's elected in 2020. Clearly, this is the best motivator for a presidential candidate ever, right? You guys should all vote for him because he's the only one who said he's going to reveal alien information. Okay, I'm kidding. All right, it's up to you. But point is, I thought that was really interesting, right? So he's willing to disclose any government information about unidentified flying objects as well as aliens. Um, and primarily, apparently, because his wife, Jane, asked him to. I don't know how he feels, but anyways. Um, so, <clears throat> it may sound like a rehash of conversations from Project Blue Book, which uh, was a famous set of Air Force studies back in the 1950s and 60s concerning UFOs that unfortunately was supposedly shut down in mid-1970 to due to lack of evidence but of course we've known that the pentagon has done some other studies uh so no doubt there's some other stuff going on um so yeah i mean frankly there's you know okay there's clearly a lot of public interest in this stuff i mean just look at how much interest the the storm area 51 folks got which by the way i have to add that 
alas, uh, they are not storming into Area 51, so they, instead they're just going to hold a giant like Woodstock-like party out there in the desert, which to me is okay, but at least nobody would get hurt, I suppose. Um, all right, enough of all this jabber about all this stuff. Yeah, sure, people can speculate. People can look at other planets, look at moons, but really the aliens are already here, guys. Come on, all right? Before I talk about that, let me just give <clears throat> a wonderful shout out to all these people who are probably not who are who are listening, uh, including Evan Weinberger, who apparently listens to this all the time, which is great. All right. Thanks, Evan. And um, no, you know, a few other ones are listening as well, and I will thank them later. Um, don't. So with that, let's jump onto these um, types of aliens, right? So, depending on what website you look at, <clears throat> you might see, okay, there's three types of aliens, or six, there's ten. Okay, I'm going to go with the ten types of aliens one, all right? So, there's this common, um, some people call it conspiracy theory. For me, I think it's just a theory. I mean, it's the ancient astronaut theory. The ancient or ancient alien theory, which basically says... Uh, you guys may be seeing the movie Prometheus, you know, aliens came and like, basically created humans, right? Well, this one's not quite like that. It's basically aliens came and then they interact with the humans. So maybe the angels and whatever others in these religious scriptures, gods, they're actually aliens, really advanced aliens, all right? So, and they're still here. Some of them are still here, all right? So um, the best known case of, um, are the, the ancient aliens, all right? are the Anukai, Anunnaki. So Anunnaki are, um, is a name given to a race of extraterrestrials by the Sumerians. Remember the Sumerian civilization about 5,000 years ago, right? So these beings arrive from a planet called Nibiru, which allegedly approaches our solar system every 3,600 years. And Anukai means those from heaven who came down to Earth. So um, this guy, Zechariah Sitchin, who wrote a bunch of books on, uh, he tra learned, taught himself Sumerian, translated these tablets, and said there's proof that these Sumerian gods and goddesses and these legends they have are actually aliens, all right? Well, pretty much, you can interpret it as that. So apparently this Anunnaki mixed their own genetic materials with the early humans, creating a race of slaves, all right? And these genetic materials, these, these genetic experiments were believed to have occurred around 200,000 years ago, and so on and so forth. All right, and you can look at all the information. If you're interested, um, yeah, just go look up Anunnaki, A-N-U-N-N-A-K-I, all right? And you will, you know, for lack of time, I, I will go on. Okay, another one you guys may have heard of is the Grace, and those are the stereotypical giant head, gray-shaped, little dwarf-like guys, right? So, large head, bulbous, giant eyes, no hair, small bodies. Okay. So, according to ufologists, they come from the constellation Orion and the star system Zeta Reticuli. Reticuli. All right. So, apparently, some ufologists say the reason they look all alike is because they're all clones of each other. The actual population is pretty small. Um, so, the greys are the ones, supposedly... I forget the word supposedly. The Greys are the ones said to be responsible for the majority of abductions on our planet. They are sometimes believed to serve another race called the Reptilians. Um, according to some people, we had a secret agreement treaty in the 1950s between our government and these aliens. Um, 
So we said, okay, man, this sucks. You know, maybe this is what governments do. Basically, our government said, all right, keep experimenting on these people, random civilians. All right, keep abducting them. Go ahead. We're not going to stop you. Just give us some of your technology so we can work with it. And that's what happened. So our government wanted alien technology and allow the aliens to abduct random humans. All right, and perform experimentations or whatever. Sounds absurd, but maybe not that absurd, right? Okay. Then, like I was saying, there's uh, these reptilians, right? So these reptilians um, are, some people say these reptilians can pretend to be us. In other words, okay, they're, they're, they are reptiles, uh, but, you know, they, they are possibly able to camouflage as humans, and uh, that's kind of um, that's kind of wild, all right. Possibly, and if you if you watch certain YouTube videos, you'd be very amazed by reptilians that's actually on TV. Like, look at their weird. There's one crazy one. Oh my gosh. Okay. Anyways, I'm not gonna talk about it on air. But point is, um, all right. Then there's some other ones. I just go through them briefly. Um, so there's green men. All right. They kind of remind me of the grays. All right, there's these Nordic aliens, which I've never heard of until I did this research. Apparently, they have long blonde hair, and they pretty much look like us, humans. Okay, weird. There's Pleiadian aliens. There's Andromedan aliens. There's Alpha Draconian aliens, all right, which are apparently 14 to 22 feet tall and, like, n not not nice, all right? Then there's Syrian, S-R-I-R-I-A-N from Sirius. Okay, so, and they all, you know, came between different time periods. Some of them are possibly still here. So, gosh, who knows? I mean, look at this. I mean, meanwhile, you think your life is dull when our planet is pretty much a visiting spot for all these different groups. Gosh, you know. Um, <clears throat> so, in case you actually see something or something happens to you, um, and... You know, if you're abducted or if you see an alien, I mean, see a UFO, you can always go to this website called NewFork, N-U-F-O-R-C dot O-R-G, all right? And I think I told you about this before. It's the National UFO Reporting Center, all right? So you can go there and you can file a report, which is fairly straightforward. All you have to do is just basically say, when did it occur? Where did it occur? What did the thing look like, the shape, how long did it last, and a description. All right? So, you guys can do that. Cool. All right. <clears throat> I could probably talk about this all day, but for the sake of time, we're going to have to wrap this show up. All right. So, this has been episode number 42. All right. Follow me on Facebook.com slash The Shen Show. And uh, currently on Action One Media Group, www.weara1.com. Don't forget, August 16th, 2019. That's a Friday, 6 to 8 p.m. The uh, Space Poetry and Wine, which uh, for you guys listening live, that'll be tomorrow night. All right. At Kaboom Books, uh, K A B O O M. And then books, all right? It's a bookstore in the Heights. So, um, yeah. And with that, I think we're drawing to a conclusion. And don't forget, don't you guys ever forget, doesn't matter the weather, look up because you never know what you will see. Good night.
Peace, Brother Anton Ryan. You tuned in to Action One Network.